We've been talking in recent weeks about how that foresight is 2020. It's often said hindsight is 2020. We've been talking about foresight is 2020, and we've particularly been focused on Paul's, the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, at least what we know of as the first letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament, where he told um, the Corinthians, the, 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 the Christ followers who were part of the local church in Corinth, he told them that God had plans for them that were so big. And I've read it so many times the last few weeks, I'm not going to read it today. I'm just going to remind those of you who've been here and uh, kind of catch up those of you who may not have been here. He said, God had plans so big for you. In fact, it says this exactly. It, it concerns the glory that he's destined for your benefit. And he said, these plans are so big. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, basically verses 7 through 10. These plans are so big that human eyes can't see it, human ears can't hear it, and the human mind can't conceive it. But then he says, God has revealed it to us by his spirit. And we've been talking about how that through the Holy Spirit's activity in our life, we can in fact see what no eye can see, hear what no ear can hear, conceive what no mind can conceive on the level of spirit, those things that concern the future that God has prepared for us. doesn't mean that we know it in exact detail. It just means that there are these, these, these moments of insight that come to us in ways great and small. We've been focused on kind of the great ways, those times in our lives when we get a sense as to what our future is to be. And typically, when it's a God-sized future or God-inspired vision, it's something bigger than we would have imagined just on our own. And the other thing that we've been talking about how, is how that, that passage is actually written in a much larger context, which is Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the fact that they had some issues in their relationships with each other. And you'll remember 1 Corinthians 1.10, he said, he starts kind of his, 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 his message to the Corinthians by saying, uh, I'm asking you that there be no division. Division is more than one vision. I'm asking you that in terms of who you are together, you're gathered together around the same vision, that you're of the same mind, and then he says, I hear that there's quarreling among you. And this is really what Corinthians is about in the bigger picture. He's writing to them about their pettiness and their relationship with each other. And part of the message, again, forgive me, those of you who've heard me talk about this at such length in the last few weeks, but part of the message is that they were so small-minded in terms of their relationships with one another that Paul couldn't really even spend very much time telling them about this God-sized vision for their future. He said, in fact, I can't even talk to you about this, 1 Corinthians 1, 3. I can't even... Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 3, I'm sorry, verse 1. I can't even talk to you about this, he said, because you're not ready for it, because you're infants. You're acting like babies in your relationships with one another. And the rest of Corinthians, in large part, is really about getting them to quit being so small in their minds and in their relating with one another so that they could somehow embrace this bigger picture of life this bigger thing that God had for them. When you are small-minded, it's almost impossible to grasp 
the bigness of God's plans for you. So that being said, let me start here today. Life responds generously to people who are, and I love this phrase, big inside. Life responds generously to people who are big inside. Jesus taught us that we can choose the degree to which good things come into our lives. We can choose either a lot or a little by our thoughts and our actions. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke offers his uh, shortened version of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we find in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount one of the most uh, famous and just uh, wonderful passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Jesus was talking, and this is what he said. I'm going to take a few minutes and read this at length. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Love your enemies. Do good to them. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it will all come back against you. Forgive others, and you will be forgiven. Give, and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Press down, shaken together, to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you give back. That passage, which is often used at offering time in many churches, is a part of a much larger passage about life lived generously in every way. In this part of Luke's gospel, Jesus mentions seven aspects of unconditional love. To sum it up, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. Do not retaliate. Give freely. Treat others the way you want to be treated. And then he offers five ways that when we give something, we get it back in the measure that we give it. And this is the principle that that's, you find all the way through Scripture, that when you sow something, you, you reap what you sow. And here are five examples of this in this particular teaching of Jesus. He said, if you sow judgment, you're going to get judgment back. If you sow condemnation, you're going to get condemnation back. If you sow pardon, you're going to get pardon back. If you sow mercy, you're going to get mercy back. And then he said, if you're a giver, and, and most people think he's talking here about finances, if you give money, well, you're going to find that coming back to you as well. 
Jesus called us to an exceptional generosity of spirit. He called us to a high-minded, open-handed, wholehearted benevolence in our approach to people and life on every level. In fact, he set the standard for this so high that we're not capable of even getting close to living this out except he helps us, which is part of the point. It's not the point I'm making today, but he set a standard too high for any human being to actually meet. Thankfully, he promises he'll help us to live a bigger life than we can on our own. But this whole passage is about generosity. Generosity of spirit is shown in many ways. When I think of a generous person, I think of someone who is not petty. I think of someone who is unselfish, genuinely altruistic, actively concerned for the welfare of others. I think of someone who is lavish in their affection towards those they love and who has a heart big enough to love a lot of people. I think of someone who is extravagant in their praise of others, who finds every possible good in everyone they meet, who is quick to forgive and generous even to those who may have hurt them. A person who has a generosity of spirit always sees possibilities and potential and opportunity in spite of present circumstances. And Jesus taught us that if we live in this kind of big way, that this kind of generosity will come back to us in the same amount in which we give it out. I like to describe this kind of person as somebody who is big inside. Here's um, Eugene Peterson's translation of part of that passage in the message. Live generously. You'll never, this is Jesus, live generously. You'll never, I promise, regret it. Live out this God-created identity, the way our Father lives towards us, generously and graciously, even when we're at our worst. Our Father is kind, you be kind. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. Be easy on people. You'll find life a lot easier. Give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back. Given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. You might say, okay, what in the world does that have to do with Corinthians and what we've been talking about the last couple weeks in foresight? I'm saying now that in order to actualize this vision for our life that's so big, human eyes can't see it, human ears can't hear it, and the human mind can't conceive it, we have to be big enough inside to embrace that kind of big vision in our lives. And see, the people in Corinth were so small inside that they couldn't... They couldn't even talk fully about these incredible things that God had planned for their futures. Is everybody doing okay? So today I want to talk about, and I think I am talking about, how that when we're big inside, we connect to the big God vision that he has for our lives. Here are three words that convey big insideness. I'm just saying this on my way. This isn't like the rest of my sermon, these three things. These are just three things to kind of unpack this idea a little bit more, and, and then we'll move on to, to, to I, what I hope will be more practicality. Three words that I think of when I think about big insideness. The first 
is magnanimity. Magnanimity is generosity in overlooking injury or insult. Magnanimity is, is a particular kind of generosity. Please understand, it's its own category of generosity. When someone's magnanimous, they are magnanimous in the context of overlooking insult. They are people who rise above it. Their generosity is of a certain sort. It's, it's magnanimity. It's overlooking injury or insult. A, magnan, a magnanimous person rises above pettiness. A magnanimous person is always one of those people who's bigger than that, whatever that is. They're just bigger than that. Abraham Lincoln is somebody that I think of when I think of a person who was big inside this way. When I look back through my files at things I've read over the years that, that, that magnanimity is described, Lincoln came up several times in some of my past readings. His magnanimity showed up in many ways, including the fact that he famously staffed his cabinet with leaders who had been his political rivals. Can you imagine that in today's world? Hence the book by Doris Kearns Goodwin, Team of Rivals. Here are a couple of examples of his magnanimity through his career. I'm just going to read a couple quick things from Team of Rivals to, just to give you an idea of what this means. So Lincoln lost an election. I'm not going to get into it. You know, he lost every election until he won the presidency. But this is what Kearns Goodwin says. Lincoln's magnanimity served him well. While Seward, speaking of William Seward, who first was a political opponent, governor of New York, etc., etc., who ended up becoming Lincoln's secretary of state, while Seward and Chase, a political opponent of Lincoln who ended up becoming chief justice appointed by Abraham Lincoln, while Seward and Chase would lose friends in victory, Lincoln in defeat gained friends. When he was president, he starts appointing his former rivals to cabinet positions because he believed that they were so competent that he, need, he needed them and he needed to rise above the fact that to a person, they had all been very critical of this country bumpkin from Illinois. Uh, at that time, the Wild West and South in the minds of those who were in power in this country. So here's another example. Chase's friend, John Alley, uh, uh, Link, uh, met with Lincoln, and Lincoln announced, now as president, I've just sent Mr. Chase word that he is to be appointed Chief Justice. Alley enthusiastically replied, Mr. President, this is an exhibition of magnanimity. And patriotism, why was it magnanimity? Because Lincoln was appointing a political enemy to be Chief Justice of the United States. This is an exhibition of magnanimity and patriotism that could hardly be expected of anyone. After what he has said against your administration, et cetera, et cetera. And then Lincoln says, to have done otherwise, I should have, I should have been recreant to my convictions of duty to, to the Republican Party and to the country. Lincoln answered as, his, as to his talk about me, I do not mind that. Chase is on the whole a pretty good fellow and a very able man. And later Kearns Goodwin says, and this is where you get the, why do you have to be big inside? Lincoln believed the risk worth taking. He trusted that Chase would help secure the rights of the black man, remember now we're in the Civil War, for which he had fought throughout his career, a belief that outweighed concerns about Chase's restless temper. So, so this picture is someone who's so big inside that they overcome personal insult because there's more at stake than just their feelings. There's a vision for a preferred future. 
When we think about magnanimity, we have to think about how magnanimous God has been toward us. There's this great story in Matthew's gospel where Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants who owed him money. He called in one servant who owed him 10,000 bags of gold gold, and he told this servant, uh, if you can't pay right now, I'm going to sell you and your entire family basically into slavery and, so that I can get my 10,000 bags of gold back. And this guy falls down before the king and he, he begs him and he says, please uh, be patient with me are the words he uses. Be patient with me. And the king's heart is touched and he cancels this guy's debts and we'll pick the text up now. But when that servant went out who'd just been forgiven for owing 10,000 bags of gold, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. The same thing that this guy had said to the king. And I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And then his fellow servants saw this, and Scripture says they became outraged. Then, and they went and told the king. And then the king called the servant in, who was forgiven but who didn't forgive. And he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. And then Jesus said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The fact is, when we live in small-minded, petty ways, as an example with unforgiveness in our heart towards someone who has injured us, we are imprisoned and we are tortured people. And the reason that we should be magnanimous is because God, who has been injured by us because of our sin against him, has chosen to forgive us and to forget about it and to give us a new life. And any time we deal with a brother or sister, or in the words of Jesus, even an enemy, without a recognition of how magnanimous God has been toward us, and if we don't treat others that way, well... We're small inside. Here's the second word I think of. It's the word abundance. An abundance mentality is the mindset that since the Lord is our shepherd, we lack nothing. An abundance mentality thinks in terms of plenty. An abundance mentality understands that God, as the creator, is fully capable of creating more and that he has given us creative power so we can join with him in creating more of most things. An abundance mentality is an attitude that views life from the perspective of possibility, potential, opportunities, and plenty. It seems to me that there are kind of two views, and this ends up showing up in economic theory and, and political divisions. Some, some seem to have the view there's, there's a limited pie, and we, we gotta, we, you know, we're, we, we're holding on to the little bit that exists. And there's another view that says, you know, there's not a limited pie. We can create, God's given us, in fact, Scripture tells us, the power to create wealth. That, 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 
that this is what we have, but when we cooperate with God, there's the possibility of making more. See, he's the creator. He makes things that don't presently exist, and he gave us people created in his image creative power. When you have an abundance mentality, you always believe that there could be more. You never think there's a limited amount, and this is all that I can ever have of anything, of forgiveness, of love, of finances, of you just have a big view of life, that there's an abundant supply that comes from God, and that this is how we should think about life. Um, don't have time to get into this, but I was looking through some old notes of mine this week, and uh, I, I, I came past a, a, a journal entry, 1996. I was on the 14th day of a 21-day juice fast, and I was uh, somewhat discouraged. In fact, I was depressed. I was dying. And uh, seriously, I was depressed. God have mercy. I, I, right about then, I had to take the kids to a Burger King, and uh, I wanted a, I still, I want a Whopper right now, just thinking about how badly I wanted a Whopper. But anyway, uh, I, but I, I had one of those moments of insight. It came to me. Uh, I guess I was kind of broken and I was just kind of open and I'm praying and I'm reading scripture and I'm hoping God will speak to me in some way, you know, please, and please tell me that I can stop this fast, I promised I was going to do, and he didn't, but anyway, he did speak to me, but, and, and I read this passage of scripture and it really, it's one of those things that got in me at that moment in a way that has impacted my worldview and my approach toward life, not that I hadn't heard other people talk about this, but I had insight about Psalm 66 verse eight, which says, for you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. Another translation, the NIV, we went through, or the, the, the King James Version, we went through fire and water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. Another translation, uh, the, the Living Bible, you, in the end, you brought us into wealth and great abundance. All of a sudden, I don't know, you know, sometimes those things come to you and you, you see something that you haven't seen before. That caused me to begin to see God in Scripture and life from the perspective of abundance and blessing. I began to understand that regardless of present circumstance, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have difficult times. Um, it doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer through trials. It doesn't mean that we aren't going to struggle in some ways. Sometimes God uses those things to refine us in our lives. But regardless of that reality, there's another reality which says that ultimately there is a gravitational God force pulling us toward a place of abundance. And that life cannot be viewed with the scarcity and smallness of mind which magnifies negativity and thinks about how little we have instead of how much is possible in our lives. This is a world-shifting approach to life. I love, the fact is, guys, you have to remember that God is looking for people he can bless and through whom he can bless the world, and he can't do that with small-minded people who live in a mindset of scarcity. Here's the third thing, it's generosity. So these are three words that I think of when I think about being big inside. Generosity. 
Here's what Solomon wrote. He wrote, one person gives freely yet gains even more. You know what? I want to go, let me, let me go back to the abundance thing. I, I, I'm, I'm always up here editing and looking at the clock and figuring how much I can say. This might take two extra minutes, but I think it's worth it because it paints a world picture of, a, a picture of how this kind of thing works. Hiram Smith was the uh, founder of, of the Franklin Quest Company and the co-founder of Franklin Covey. He wrote a wonderful book on time management called The Ten Natural Laws of Successful Time and Life Manage It. I read it years ago. But in it, he talks about the abundance mentality. And he writes, the abundance mentality is the idea that there's plenty on this planet for everyone. Now, he comes from a faith perspective. If we will share what we have with each other, everyone can win. And then he said later, there were five of us who initially started the Franklin Quest Company. Several years ago, all the partners decided to give some stock away. We gave the stock away when it was practically worthless to about 10 or 11 people who had helped us get Franklin on his feet. As the years went by, we gave other options on the stock so that people would have ownership in what was becoming a wonderful copy, a company. And then later, they, years later, he said, I realized that I've given away more than $200 million in stock. The stock I have remaining is worth $60 million. But I know that if I hadn't given away that stock, that ownership in the company, then the ownership I've retained would not be worth anywhere near $60 million. In other words, his attitude, Paul, his attitude was that if I share the wealth with the people who are helping me do this, they're going to have a sense of ownership, a stake in this, and they're going to work harder to help to create something beautiful. And so it looks like I gave away $200 million, but that's not how a person with abundance mentality looks at it. First of all, they say, I gave away $200 million and I have 60 million. So I have 60 million, but it's more than I would have had if I hadn't have given the stock away. See, that's the way people who come from an abundance mentality think. They're not misers. You know, misers are miserable. We're a generous person has a big view of life. I need to preach about this for about six weeks. And then Hiram Smith said, what I'm worth today, I'm worth because I was willing to share the wealth. I believe that this is what we have to do in this country. If we find ways to share our excess, that excess will grow faster than if we hoard it for ourselves. This is a natural law. If you want an abundance of anything, the best way to achieve it is by sharing what you have with others. Now, I don't have time to talk about this, but there's a natural law. This is the way God's made life work. There's also a supernatural law. And that is when you have this kind of mentality in cooperation with God, then you're like the little boy with the bread and loaves who put it in the hands of Jesus, and he took it and supernaturally multiplied it into something more than it possibly could have been. And at the end, there are 12 baskets left over. The little boy had more than he ever could have had because he trusted in the hands of Jesus. So there's a natural law. Any human being who practices abundance is going to reap what they sow. It's, that's the way God created life. But in the supernatural perspective, there's a whole other thing that happens when God gets involved in our lives and he multiplies what we have in supernatural ways. And if you've never lived on that level, well, I hope that you experience. So the third thing is generosity. Proverbs tells us one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. I mean, you see that in Proverbs, you see that in, uh, you see it everywhere. 
One reason that life responds generously to generous people is that generous people are happy people. And happy people radiate happiness that affects the environment of their lives and creates the environmental conditions that promote success. See, Jesus said that it's more blessed to give than to receive. The word blessed in the New Testament is often translated happy. The, the, the two ideas are very closely connected. The person who gives is happier than the person who receives. In fact, I've talked about this in the past. You've probably seen these studies. There are studies now that have been done where there are actually MRI brain scans where you can see the brain light up in certain places when certain things happen. And there's a part of the brain that lights up in an MRI brain scan when a gift is given to a person. But that very same place lights up much brighter when that person gives something. Jesus said it a long time before MRI scans. The person who's on the giving side is happier than the person who's on the receiving side. Now we have to learn how to do both well, give and receive. Because if you're a giver, there's going to be receiving required. And there should be a generous, gracious spirit about receiving as well. But a generous person like they experience a level of pleasure in their life that exudes out into the environment. Just think about it. Think about the generous people you know. Just think about what it feels like to be around them. Just think about that. And then think about somebody who's miserly, who's holding on to, you know, they're, they're miserly in their affection. They're miserly in their praise. They're miserly in their view of possibility. They always say no, and you have to talk them into thinking about yes. That kind of, just think about that kind of person. That kind of person, that kind of person, God bless all of us because some of us are working our way from being that kind of person. That kind of small inside person has a difficult time embracing the kind of life that God's dreamed for us. Now, let me spend the rest of my time talking about this because this is where, uh, it's been a long time since I talked about this, and, uh, and, I, and I want to talk about it because I think it's so important and full of possibility for our lives. Jesus, so a key way that we show that we're big inside is to be generous toward God and others with our resources. It's not the only way. You'll notice I've talked about living a big life in all kinds of ways. One of the ways, and a key way for reasons I'll explain, that we can tell whether we're big inside is how we think about our resources. We choose our measure when it comes to money just as we do with everything else in life. The reaping and sowing reality is real in, on this dimension of life just like it's real in terms of forgiveness. It's the same principle. Uh, Jesus said at the end of that passage in Luke, given it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's not Terry Smith, that's Jesus Christ, okay? So Paul said essentially the same thing to the Corinthians, back to them. It appears that one antidote to their pettiness and jealousy and quarreling and being generally just small inside was for them to learn to be generous people. If you go to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, there are two entire chapters that are given to Paul talking about generosity and Paul receiving an offering from these previously small-minded Corinthians. And I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul is saying to these small-minded Corinthians, be generous towards others, okay? He closes that, that 
that teaching in what we know of as 2 Corinthians 9, 6 by saying this. I mean, hear how clear this is. Paul writing to the Corinthians, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? He's saying, you reap what you sow. God loves it when someone's cheerful when it comes to giving. And God is going to Make sure that you are enriched in every way. Money plays an outsized role in demonstrating how big our hearts are and vice versa. As it concerns Jesus, a third of his parables were about money. He taught that you could learn a lot about what was in someone's heart by how they dealt with money. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's this great story that demonstrates the importance that he places on this subject. If this makes you feel uncomfortable, listen to this. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple, Mark's gospel, and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Imagine Jesus is sitting by the connections drop box at the end of the 9 a.m. service. This is, he's sitting there watching people put their money in. They didn't have envelopes, so he was able to see how much they put in. And he also had a, another ability, and that was he was able to see what was in people's hearts when they put in whatever they put in. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who were making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Now, which one of these were practicing the abundance mentality? The rich person who gave a little or the poor woman who gave what for her was a lot. It wasn't the amount, it was the size of the heart that made the gift a gift of generosity. And, and I wonder if Jesus was sitting and watching us, what would he see in our hearts as it concerns our giving? Our attitude about money and our generosity or lack thereof says so much about whether or not we're big inside in every other way. Remember the story of the rich man, the guy who came to Jesus and said, Tell me what I need to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, you know, he listed some commandments. He said, keep these commandments. And the guy said, I've kept all of them. And then Mark's gospel says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Listen, the reason that Jesus says this to this guy is because he loved him. He had a bigger view of this guy's life than this guy had for himself. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have. And give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus looked around at his disciples and he said, he said, it's almost impossible. He said, it's impossible for a rich man to be saved. 
He said, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. But then one of his disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, well, everything's possible with God. So he's acknowledging it's really hard for somebody who has a lot of wealth to be saved because oftentimes there's an unhealthy connection to the wealth, but it doesn't mean that someone can't be saved because everything's possible with God. See, it's really impossible for any of us to be saved, but God makes it possible, all right? Subject for another day. And then Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. You reap what you sow. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. The reason Jesus told this rich guy that he needed to sell everything he had and give it to the poor was because this, for this guy, money was an idol. That doesn't mean everybody's supposed to, or most of us, or even any of us, are supposed to sell everything we have and give to the poor. But whatever it is that's keeping us from the possibilities of the life God planned for us, we need to get rid of, right? Whatever that is. For that guy, for that guy it was money. And because he couldn't let go of it, he missed the hundred times, Jesus says to his disciples, if you're willing to give it, up for me, I'm going to give you a hundred times more in this age and in the age to come. This rich guy was doing everything right, yet the money thing messed him up. He's like the guy you're about to see in the cartoon behind me. I've known a lot of people like that. He needed to give up money because money was an idol. Now, all of us have different stuff, but if your thing that's keeping you from big insideness is money. Then you need to deal with that just like all of us have things we need to deal with. You're not uniquely having a problem, okay? We've all got stuff we're holding on to that's keeping us from being big inside. If your thing is money, you need to deal with that and learn to live this bigger idea of life that Jesus promised us. So let me start wrapping this up by coming back to a teaching. I haven't done a teaching on tithing for a year. And uh, uh, every once in a while it's important to do uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, tithing according to scripture, is the first step in scriptural generosity. Tithers, every time someone tithes, they put to death this, they're owned by money and money is an idol thing. Now, it's just the first step in scriptural generosity. It's not the whole step. For many of us, the tithe, we don't even think of it as generous. We just return it to God, and we think about whatever we give above that as generosity. But nonetheless, tithing is the first step in scriptural generosity. Tithing shows, according to scripture, that we put God first. Tithing shows that we acknowledge that God is the owner over everything in our lives. Tithing shows that we trust God. Tithing gives God an opportunity to bless us in supernatural ways. What is a tithe? Well, a tithe means 10%. A tithe has always been understood to be the first 10% of our income. And people of faith have long believed and practiced that the tithe is to be returned to God. 
Here are some examples through scripture of how this works its way out from the very beginning all the way through Jesus. The first person ever recorded to tithe was Abraham all the way back in Genesis. I'm going to be quick about this. I've taught about it at length in the past. I'm just going to be quick and highlight a couple things. Abraham, whose relationship with God was based on faith, not law. This is 400 years before the law was introduced. Abraham tithed in faith when he met a representative of God, some people say actually the pre-incarnate Christ, and he was blessed by this guy named Melchizedek and Abraham tithed. Here's what said, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, which was a covenant meal, which is very important. They were in covenant together. And he was priest of the most high God. He blessed Abram. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Since that time, the seed of Abraham, which is what we are through Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament, have been practicing tithing returning a tenth to God with whom we are in covenant and who has blessed us. It's a beautiful thing. It's a response to the bread and wine and it's a response to the covenant. I wish I had time to teach that at length today, but that's, it's a beautiful, beautiful teaching. Moses comes along 400 years later and he codifies the tithe. Part of what Moses said, Leviticus, is a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. When you understand tithing, you understand the first 10% isn't even yours, it's God's, and it's to be returned. In Deuteronomy, he said the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. Solomon, years later, in, in Proverbs said, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. The first fruits are considered to be the tithe. It's the first thing that we return. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. The prophets preached tithing. I'm taking you all the way through Genesis. You see that? If you understand scripture, the prophets teach tithing, probably the best known passage because it's awesome, is, is offered by Malachi, the last prophet in the New Testament. He's prophesying about what the reality that's going to occur when Jesus comes. So this is an Old Testament passage, but it has New Testament relevance. And he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. What's the purpose of the tithe? Well, the purpose of the tithe is to make sure that there's food in God's house. And it's generally recognized that people tithe at the place that they're fed spiritually. And so most people practice tithing in the context of their local church. That there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. The only time in the entire Bible God asked people to test him. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Then you go into the New Testament. What did Jesus say? Well, you have to realize, for one thing, that all those Jewish people in the first century practiced tithing just as sure as they practiced keeping the Sabbath. It wasn't an issue. It was normal life. It's just what they did. It wasn't a matter of controversy. But Jesus is talking one time about how he wants people to not to substitute their tithe for the other good things they should be doing in their life. And in Matthew 23, 23, he says, this is what Jesus said, you should tithe, yes. In the Greek language, it's, that's, a, that's called a moral imperative. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Tithing was an assumed practice. And Jesus wanted to make sure that people were tithing, but that they didn't think because they tithed, that 
was everything. That was just one thing, and they should tithe with their heart being right towards God and caring about other things and other people as well. Now, there are all kinds of examples of people who are big inside, practicing tithing, and it's experiencing God's blessings on their life. Now, you know I'm about finished, right? Pete came out. He's kind of in the dark, but you can hear it just a little bit. You know I'm wrapping this thing up. Is everybody okay? Can I have two or three more minutes to give you a couple examples of of, uh, of, of just, things, this, just things, random things I think about when I think about this big insideness and people I have observed and seen who, who uh, uh, just practice this in an amazing way. One would be, one would be um, uh, Chick-fil-A. Uh, what did Kanye sing? He sang, uh, closed on Sunday, you're my Chick-fil-A. Have you heard that? You heard that? Just out of curiosity, how many of you have heard that? Can I just see your hand? All right, you've been outed. <laughs> Russ Thompson, try Kanye West, okay? I can just see you listening. Close on Sunday. The, the, the song is actually, it's kind of, it's cool. The idea is everybody knows Chick-fil-A, uh, everybody knows that their mission is to glorify God, to be good stewards of their resources. All the way since 1940, Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, decided not only to tithe from his own personal income, but to tithe from his business. of everything, he's tithed since the 1940s. And not only that, and this is kind of the same principle, they close on Sunday. Why do they close on Sunday? Because they want the people in their company to be able to go to church and to be able to practice the principle of the Sabbath. And someone may say, and then what have they done? They've grown to be one of the most successful fast food franchises in history, 2,300 stores now, and their corporate culture is amazing. The turnover rate of their employees is extremely low. Any, any, do, I did a, a podcast a few months ago with David Farmer, one of the top executives of Chick-fil-A, and the corporate culture is just so, they were talking to me about about hospitality, which is Chick-fil-A was talking to me about hospitality. But anyway, uh, they are so hospitable, it was embarrassing to have a conversation. They're, it's big. It's, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. How in the world do you make money when you're giving away 10%? Because that's the way life was made to work. That's how. How do you make money when you're closed on Sundays? Well, Kanye says, you know what? We we should all be learning something about that. This is my Chick-fil-A. And he starts, it's a matter of prioritization, determining what's important in your life. I think about, ah, so many examples. I think about Sir John Templeton. I'm finished with this. You know, John Templeton was founder of the Templeton Funds. Uh, Money Magazine called him the the, the, uh, arguably the greatest investor of of the uh, the last century. Uh, He he founded the Templeton Prize for Religion where he gave a million British pounds to every year to some person or organization. Well, I was at a thing with John Templeton. I know I sometimes sound like Forrest Gump, don't I? I see all these different things I've I've been in. But I, I was at this thing with Sir John Templeton. Somehow or another, we got in a conversation. He actually asked me my advice about a person that I had some relationship with that they were thinking about giving the Templeton Prize in religion to. Anyway, um, uh, and so, so we had this conversation. It was amazing. I'm talking to Sir John Templeton. And then he gets up and he speaks and he says, and I heard it so many times, this incredibly wealthy guy, he says, I attribute my success to the fact that I've tithed on every dollar I have ever made. It was mind-boggling to me. I think he's going to get up there and talk about, well, this is how you make money. And he gets up and says, let me tell you, my attitude, see, and you think about Sir John Temple, and you think about a big guy. I mean, there are a lot of rich people, but there are some rich people you get a sense they're not a big guy. 
right? And then there are these other people, you just know they're enormous people. And often, well, almost always, you find some form of rich generosity in that person who's big inside. Because this is the way that God designed life to be lived. Cause you are make miracle work, promise keep, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are make miracle.